Welcome to part two of our discussion on the translation and pronunciation of the divine name. Last time we got into the biblical internal evidence for how God's name should be treated. And now we're going to continue our search for how this tradition of not pronouncing or translating the divine name developed. We're going to look at records of ancient traditions and also see what the Septuagint did when it came to translating the divine name. This is Andrew Case, and you're listening to Working for the Word. Here we go. As we continue to search for a good reason why the pronunciation of the divine name fell under such a taboo, we're going to look now at the Babylonian Talmud, which offers another explanation. We just looked at Amos, if you remember the last episode, as a potential reason. And even though the Babylonian Talmud is not as ancient as Amos or the Septuagint, let's go ahead and see what it says. And I'm going to be reading from Rosh Hashanah 18b. It says, The Seleucid Greeks decreed that the name of Elohim may not be spoken aloud. But when the Hasmoneans grew in strength and defeated them, they decreed that the name of Elohim must be used even in contracts. When the rabbis heard about this, they said, Tomorrow this person will pay his debt and the contract will be thrown on a garbage heap, so they forbade its use in contracts. End quote. So according to the Talmud account, the prohibition to use the name of Yahweh began as one of the anti-Torah decrees enacted by the Seleucid Greek tyrant Antiochus IV Epiphanes around 168 B.C., This was part of his plan to convert the Jews into Greeks. But when Judas Maccabeus defeated the Greeks, he restored the use of the divine name and established a law requiring the use of the name of Yahweh in contracts so that every Jew would regain the habit of using the divine name. And I think this harkens back to what we saw commanded in Deuteronomy. But the rabbis were opposed to this decree and banned the use of the name in contracts. And you can see why in that quote, because, well, if the name is written on a contract and then it's thrown away in the garbage heap and it's burned or whatever, then that would desecrate the name of God. Now, of the three primary Jewish religious groups described by Josephus in the centuries before Christ, so we've got first the Sadducees, then the Pharisees, and the Essenes, only the Sadducees defended the use of the divine name and required its use in contracts. Now, the Essenes, if you remember, the Essenes are the community around the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? They, on the other hand, stood strictly against the mention of Yahweh's name in their community rule book. So this is what their rule book says. Anyone who speaks aloud the most holy name of Elohim, whether in cursing or frivolously or as a blurt in time of trial or for any other reason, or while he is reading the book or praying, is to be expelled never again to return to the body of the community. 
end quote. So that's pretty serious. Now, the wider context of this prohibition does not give any reason, whether out of reverence or respect. So note that the prohibition doesn't limit itself to using Yahweh's name in cursing, but even in prayer or any other reason. So this kind of blanket prohibition ignores the teaching of the very Old Testament scriptures the Essene community is famous for preserving, ironically. Now, in order to ensure the complete elimination of the divine name's use, the Essenes went so far as to write the name in Paleo-Hebrew script. Okay, so this is the ancient Hebrew script that they used before the current script that you see everywhere nowadays, the, the standard Hebrew script we see in Hebrew Bibles and everything, which is called the Aramaic square script. So the Paleo-Hebrew script looks totally different. You can look it up online if you want to see pictures of it. And this is something the average person couldn't read since it had fallen into disuse in the 3rd century B.C. So even though the rest of their Hebrew documents at the Essene community are written in Aramaic square script, the more modern one, they insisted on using this Paleo-Hebrew script for the divine name. Now, just in case someone knew how to read Paleo-Hebrew script, some of the scrolls used four black dots in place of yod heh vav heh the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, or Yahweh. Okay, so this was used to prevent anyone from reading it, supposedly, and so here's an example. One might read something like, and, four dots, spoke to Moses, saying, etc. <laughs> so, based on their own explicit statement regarding the prohibition, any attempt to claim that this practice was for the sake of reverencing God is really pure speculation. But based on the biblical teaching that we talked about in the last episode, this practice of the Essenes accomplishes exactly the opposite of what Yahweh explicitly desired. Now, later in the writings of the Mishnah from the 3rd century AD, we see described the developing attitude of Jewish teaching on the issue of pronouncing Yahweh's name. So in Mishnah Sanhedrin 10.1, we basically see that they say explicitly, anyone who pronounces the divine name as it is written has no portion in the world to come. Now, following the Mishnah, there's a subsequent thread of rabbinic teaching that doesn't always agree with this prohibition, actually. And this is something I don't hear talked about most of the time when this topic comes up. So let's consider the following line of developments of Jewish commentary on Boaz's greeting and on Judges 6.12, which we looked at in the last episode. So here's the first commentary. When the sectarians perverted their ways and said that there was only one world, they decreed that they should say, forever and ever, literally, from the end of the world to the end of the world. They also decreed that a person should greet his fellow in God's name, as it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they answered, May the Lord bless you. Ruth 2. 
And it also says, the Lord is with you, you valiant warrior, Judges 6.12. Okay. Now, then, the Talmud comments on that commentary in Berakot 9.5, says, the sages also instituted that one should greet another in the name of God, i.e., one should mention God's name in his greeting as it is stated. And presently Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the harvesters, the Lord is with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you, Ruth 2.4. And it says, and the angel of God appeared to him and said to him, God is with you, you mighty man of valor, Judges 6.12. And it says, and despise not your mother when she is old, i.e., one must not neglect customs, which he inherits. Unless you say that mentioning God's name is prohibited, it says, It is time to work for the Lord. They have made void your Torah. Psalm 119.126 I.e., it is occasionally necessary to negate biblical precepts in order to perform God's will, and greeting another is certainly God's will. Berakot 63a 7 through 8, then offers further commentary on this issue. Here we go. The Gemara explains, and if you say, Boaz said this on his own, and it proves nothing with regard to normative practice, come and hear a proof from the verse. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Judges 6.12. And if you say that it was an angel who said this to Gideon, that perhaps this verse was the angel informing Gideon that the Lord is with him, but it is not the standard formula of a greeting, come and hear proof from the verse, Proverbs twenty three twenty two, and despise not your mother when she is old. The customs of the nation's elders are an adequate source from which to derive halakha. So I hope their argument is coming through. As I understand it, when they quote Proverbs 23, 22 over and over in this argument, despise not your mother when she is old, they're basically saying we can't despise these old customs that came down to us through Boaz, for example. So we can't just ignore what he did and develop our own traditions and pretend like what he did didn't matter. Okay, so now the commentaries keep going, so stay with me. Here we go. Here's a further commentary from Makot on what we just read. Why was the proof from Boaz's statement to the harvesters insufficient? The Gemara explains, And if you would say, It is Boaz who did so on his own, and from heaven they did not agree with him, come and hear proof. And it says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. The angel greeted Gideon with the name of God, indicating that there is agreement in heaven that this is an acceptable form of greeting. So that's pretty clear. Finally, the modern Jewish commentary on the discussion reads as follows. The sages also decreed that it was permitted and even worthy to greet one's fellow human being by using the name of God, as did Boaz and the other reapers. Usually decrees are meant to change a prior practice. Here the historical background is slightly unclear. My guess is that earlier generations thought that it was improper to use God's name in greeting a mere human being. In contrast, according to the sages, 
Since human beings were created in the image of God, there is a little bit of divine in every human being. In a sense, then, greeting one's fellow human being by using God's name is like greeting God by using God's name. Hence, it is not only permitted, it is encouraged. The final two midrashim are not specifically related to the two decrees mentioned above, but are rather general exhortations to heed the decrees of the sages, end quote. So now you've heard it from the horse's mouth. This is from the teaching of the Jews over the centuries. Now, strangely, the typical practice and overwhelming culture around the divine name in Israel today is one completely contrary to what these commentaries conclude. And in all my research, I have not found any reason for this. So it's really strange, really strange. I would love to hear from anyone who has a very clear, cogent reason for why this is not heeded by the Jewish communities today in Israel. Now let's move on to the Septuagint. The majority tradition of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we'll also call LXX sometimes here, it used kurios in Greek in place of the divine name, which means Lord or Master. The great Christian manuscripts of the Septuagint, so Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus, all have kurios in place of yod heh vav heh Y-H-W-H, or Yahweh. So what motivated this? Some scholars, now <laughs> get ready, because this is uh, a long confusing discussion and we're going to be talking about manuscripts and I won't be able to show you those manuscripts on a podcast. Uh, maybe I'll make a video of this someday, but you'll just have to bear with me. But it's, it's, it has to be said, the evidence has to be presented in this whole issue. So here we go. What motivated this? Some scholars have suggested that this was a strategy used by authorities to facilitate the Hellenizing of Jews. Now, when we talk about the Hellenizing of Jews, we're talking about converting the Jews into Greeks, right? So by suppressing the special name of God and using kurios, it made it more universal and easier to harmonize with the emperors and gods of the Greco-Roman world. Now, a 19th century scholar named Baudissin argued that the later practice of the Masoretes of marking Yahweh with alternate vowels So I'm assuming a lot of you as a listener, if you haven't heard about the Masoretes or how they developed the vowel system for Hebrew and how they marked the divine name with alternate vowels, you can easily find that online in a million different ways. So go check that out if you're not familiar with that. But this guy argued that this practice of the Masoretes arose from the precedent set by the LXX or the Septuagint. He held this primarily because he didn't consider kurios to be merely a pious way of avoiding articulation of the tetragrammaton, but rather a distinct Semitic divine name used instead. So that's one theory. Now, as we already mentioned, some Greek manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible have been discovered to differ from the standard of using kurios for the name especially amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. So just keep in mind that the Essene community, 
the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found both Hebrew manuscripts and Greek manuscripts. So in case you weren't aware of that, we're going to be talking about Dead Sea Scrolls, but now we're going to be talking about evidences of Greek manuscripts using different things for the divine name here in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there is one scroll containing the second half of Deuteronomy, dated from the middle of the first century B.C., and it contains no evidence of using kurios at all. Instead, the scribe left large spaces where the divine name would have occurred, and then he marked the gaps with a dot on each side, and then inserted the name in Hebrew between the dots. One space was left blank, and this may indicate that the first scribe was not able or allowed to write the name in Hebrew, and so he left it for another. Then there's another really important scroll called the Nahal Hever scroll, which contains fragments of the minor prophets. This scroll is dated from about 50 BC to 50 AD, and these fragments have the divine name written in Paleo-Hebrew script in 28 places. And so, once again, we have this, I wish I could show you this Paleo-Hebrew script. You've got it in the middle of Greek text, right? All of a sudden, you have this ancient, ancient Hebrew script rendering the divine name. This same archaic script can be found in 12 Hebrew manuscripts of Leviticus and Job from the Dead Sea. And it's used consistently throughout those manuscripts. Now, another interesting piece of evidence in this whole thing from Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, is what we call 4Q Pap LXX Lev B, dated to the 1st century BC, which renders in the place of the divine name Yao, Yao in Greek letters, instead of Kurios. Now, a guy named Frank Shaw argues that this manuscript represents an ancient contention over the pronunciation or avoidance of the name, and that its use did not die out as early as some have proposed. Whether this constitutes evidence for the original translation practice of the first LXX translators remains speculation. This is important. And we're going to go back and forth about this speculation over and over throughout this discussion. Now, returning to the Nahal Hever fragments, which used Paleo-Hebrew, remember, some people have thought that this marks out the divine name as something too holy to be pronounced. Now, a guy named Petersma, famous, famous Septuagint scholar, argued that these Greek manuscripts which write Yahweh in Hebrew, are actually later manifestations of an archaizing motivation on the part of the scribes. So something the Essene community seemed to have a penchant for. And so this is, this is more like an archaizing motivation rather than evidence of what the earliest Septuagint translation practice would have produced. Okay, so Petersma is saying this was not the original, this is not evidence of the most ancient way that Septuagint translators dealt with the divine name. Now, he showed that it was probably indicative of some dissatisfaction with how previous manuscripts had rendered Yahweh as Kurios. 
he pointed out that in the Hebrew text we find le Yahweh. Okay, so you have the inseparable Lamed preposition to Yahweh, translated to Yahweh or for Yahweh. And you have that hundreds of times. And this is rendered in the Septuagint manuscripts as Kurio with the Yoda subscript under the Omega, right? So that would be Lord in the dative case. An example of this is found in Genesis 4.3, where Cain brought the fruit of the ground as a quote-unquote offering to Yahweh, okay? So this phrase, offering or sacrifice to Yahweh, mean ha le Yahweh or ladonai, as the Jews would say, in Greek is thusian to kurio. So Petersma's argument could be summarized by the following question. If the earliest Septuagint manuscripts had rendered the divine name in Hebrew letters without the inseparable preposition, all right, the Lamed inseparable preposition, how would later revisers have known to insert kurios in the dative case? In other words, how would later revisers know when there was a Lamed preposition attached to the name? Now, this argument is challenged by the solution of inserting the dative article to, so to with the iota subscript under the omega, before the name written in Hebrew, which we actually have evidence of in the Nahal Hever manuscript. And so you have the definite dative article to appearing right before the name written in Paleo-Hebrew script. So that's interesting. Also, we find further evidence of to preceding the name in Hebrew, occurring in 4Q LXX Lev B at Leviticus 3.11, 14, and 4.3. Now, in spite of this, Petersma maintained that the original translators wrote kurios without the article in Greek because they regarded it as a proper name which is an idea that we'll return to later when we consider the question of the New Testament author's perception of kurios. By contrast, Emmanuel Tov explained the absence of the article as evidence of a mechanical scribal replacement of yao by kurios performed by Christians. And he concluded that yao represents the earliest attested stage in the history of the Septuagint translation, when the name of God was represented by its transliteration, just like any other personal name in the Septuagint. Yet, Tov, and this is a problem, he doesn't explain his view sufficiently for me. Uh, He doesn't provide enough evidence to build a convincing case for this. Now, as we move on to figuring out you know, what was the original translation of the Septuagint, right? Was it kurios? Was it yao? Was it, was it that they put it in Hebrew script? What was it exactly? Let's talk about Origen, the church father Origen. He commented that the most accurate LXX manuscripts had the name in ancient Hebrew letters. Now, the problem with his statement is that it's not guaranteed that he had access to the earliest manuscripts. And it's probable that he was referring to the revised text of Aquila, 
which came later. If you don't know who Aquila was, then go back to my episode on the murderous history of Bible translations, and you can hear all about him. Now, a guy named Patrick Skehan took a shot at placing the different LXX renderings of the name in chronological order as follows. So, number one, he thought the original was Yao. Number two, then he evolved into Hebrew square script. Okay, Hebrew square script or Aramaic square script is what we, we see today, Hebrew written in. And then third, Paleo-Hebrew script, so that archaizing motivation or tendency. And then number four, Gurios. So that's the order in which he thinks that things developed over time. Now, I'm not saying that he, I agree with him. I'm just presenting some people's views right now. So let's, let's keep going. Wilkinson... So Wilkinson, I should introduce him, Robert Wilkinson, wrote a book called Tetragrammaton, Western Christians and the Hebrew Name of God from the Beginnings to the 17th Century. It's a 600-page book. It is the best book on this subject, but the problem is it costs $300, all right? But if you find a used, affordable copy, then go for it. It is the most valuable encyclopedic resource on this topic. Okay, so... Wilkinson, writing about this whole issue, he says, Given the paucity of evidence and challenge of dating the material with precision, it may be better to hold that different conventions were held by different groups, perhaps at the same time. We should further allow for the possibility of different practices in different books. In some of the prophets, Gurios may definitely appear to have been the original but this need not have been so in other books. Now, Wilkinson goes on to write this. An original Septuagint transliteration of the Hebrew Tetragrammaton as Yao gains plausibility from other early uses of this name. Diodorus of Sicily, 129-2, first century AD, states that Moses referred his laws to the god called Yao, Yao, we shall see later, may also be found in patristic authors and the magical papyri. Varro, 116 to 127 BC, tells us that the Jewish god is called Yao in the Chaldean mysteries. It is also reminiscent in its pronunciation of the form of the tetragrammaton found in the elephantine papyri YHW. Dioscorides Padanius, 40-90 to 90 AD, in his Peri Bainonias, 11-2, cries, Be with me, Lord, Curios, God, Yao, Yao. So he has both there, Curios and Yao, Yao. Continuing on with this quote, the Alexandrian grammarian Aelius Erodianus, 180 to 250 A.D., writing on orthography, begs, May I heal you by Yao. Much later, the 5th century grammarian Hesychius, also from Alexandria, in his lexicon, explains the name Oseas, Hosea as strength of Yao, end quote. Now, Origen also presents more evidence for Yao in his commentary on John 1.1 by glossing the name Yeremias 
Jeremiah, as meteorismos yao, which means exaltation of yao. More occurrences of yao can be found in Codex Macalianus. So basically in this book, he has two marginal notes in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel 1-2 and Ezekiel 11-1, we see evidences of yao being used. So at this point, we could talk about another possibility for the chronology of the Septuagint rendering the divine name. So it could be number one, the first way was Yao, number two, then it was Kurios, and then number three, the archaizing tendency kicked in and then you have Hebrew square script or Paleo-Hebrew script. Now this is because of the later tendency to Hebraize as we see in Aquila's revisions, which used the Tetragrammaton in Paleo-Hebrew script instead of Kurios. This was actually very likely a reactionary archaizing brought about by conflict between Christians and Jews. And once again, I talked about that in the episode on the murderous history of Bible translation. It seems that even though the name was written in Paleo-Hebrew, it was intended to be pronounced as kurios when read aloud. This is evident from one place in the Aquila fragments where there was no room to write, quote, in the house of Yahweh. Sacra as kappa upsilon with a macron over the upsilon, representing kuriu, which would be Lord in the genitive case or of the Lord, for those who don't know Greek. Now, other evidence of Hebraizing is found when something occurs in some manuscripts that's actually kind of funny and sad, but it's basically an attempt to render the visual appearance of yod He vav He in capital Greek letters. So you have Pi, Yoda, Pi, Yoda. So if you can imagine that in capital Greek letters, you can see how it has a similarity to the look of Yahweh in Hebrew letters. So people were doing that as well, which would actually be pronounced, if you didn't know what was going on, then you would just end up pronouncing it as PP. Now you can see this in C. Taylor's hexapleric fragments that show that Aquila, Symmachus, and the Septuagint column have PP, where Yahweh would be in Hebrew. Origen wrote in a letter to Marcella that those who do not understand the divine name generally read it as PP on account of the similarity of the letters to those found in Greek books. Again, Origen remarked that, quote, the Tetragrammaton is read Adonai as a proper noun, but amongst the Greeks, Kurios is said. Now, Finally, before everyone's head explodes, we're going to wrap this up, but let me just mention that during the period when the Great Isaiah Scroll of the Dead Sea Scrolls was produced, so this is around the 2nd century BC, there's evidence of an aversion to pronouncing the name even while dictating scripture for the sake of copying. So, for instance, the Isaiah Scroll used Hebrew square script to write out the divine name. And it appears that the scribe was writing from dictation. So you have 
one guy reading or dictating and the other guy writing it down so he can be focused on what he's writing instead of glancing back and forth from one manuscript to another, right? So that's one way they did it back then. So in 317 of Isaiah on this manuscript, we have Adonai where Yahweh should be. And in 318, we have Yahweh where Adonai should be. So if he were only hearing Adonai, so let's say the guy reading it aloud, dictating it, he's he's too afraid or, or too reverent or something, he can't pronounce the divine name as it is written. So he's saying Adonai, but there's also places where it is just says Adonai. It doesn't say yod heh vav Hey or Y-H-W-H. So he's just reading Adonai every time. There's going to be confusion when the guy is hearing it and writing it down. So this kind of confusion is expected and it happens in that scroll. In both cases, he corrected his mistake in the space above each word. So this is evidence that he heard it, he wrote it, then they went back and they made the corrections because they're like, oh, oops, shouldn't have done that, wasn't clear. Um, let's look at the manuscript. Okay, let's make the correction. And further evidence of this mistake can be found in 611, 714, 97, and 2116. So it wasn't an isolated instance. So this, along with other evidence, demonstrates that the name was pronounced as Adonai long before the Masoretic tradition. So that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me over here and listening. If you're finding this valuable, if you think this research and this information is helpful for understanding and discussing this whole issue, do me a favor, share it with somebody. We need to get the word out about this whole topic because there is a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of misunderstanding around the pronunciation and translation of the divine name. So I really want to get the word out to more people so that we can have a more mature and balanced idea of what's going on here. Thanks again. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time with part three.